If you would, turn with me to Romans 6. It's on page 942 in the Pew Bible. And if you would rise for for the reading of God's word. We'll kind of end here at the end of the sermon in this or portions of this text, but I'm going to read Romans 6, 1 through 14, just to frame our thoughts concerning the subject matter this morning, which is sanctification or the Christian's fight against his or her sin. Romans 6, verse 1, this is what Holy Scripture says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were buried into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for this Sunday. Thank you that we can gather together in this room, men and women, boys and girls, young and old, people from all kinds of ethnic backgrounds, from all kinds of cultures, people who grew up in the church, people who came to Christ later in life, we're grateful that the one thing which unites us is the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and that is why you have gathered us here in this room this morning. And I just pray and I plead with you, O God, that you be with us in these moments. Help me to help my friends to understand what your word has to say concerning this matter of sanctification. I pray that you'd help me to be clear. I pray that you'd help me to be persuasive. I pray that you'd help me to be Bible-centered, gospel-centered, and I pray that most of all that Jesus would be exalted and that he would be seen as beautiful and precious as our Savior and as our shepherd in these moments this morning. Would you help all of us to receive what your word has to say to us 
And would you transform us by the truth of your word? Nothing good will happen this morning apart from the operation of your spirit. And so we ask that even as we sang at the outset of this service, that you, O Spirit of God, would come down. We ask these things in Christ's name, knowing our weakness. Amen. My family has some, at times, unorthodox ways to entertain ourselves. One such activity is to walk through a massive showroom filled with all kinds of furniture, lighting, and decor. And at the end of it, they serve you a gourmet Scandinavian food. If that's not your thing, don't worry, they have perfectly good American food as well in the form of cheap hot dogs and pizza. And of course, the activity I'm talking about is running through Ikea with our three rambunctious children who are difficult to contain. Now, I love Ikea, probably because I'm largely incompetent when it comes to working with my hands. Um, And so their foolproof furniture with pre-measured and pre-cut pieces already painted, with the holes already drilled, with all the hardware included, including the instructions, which contain no wording, by the way, which means that you can be illiterate and entirely useless with your hands, and Ikea is still for you. (laughs) Now, imagine assembling one of these things without the instruction manual. You could have the desire to assemble a shelving unit. You could have the strength to swing a hammer. But if that desire and that strength is not channeled towards the proper steps and instructions, you could actually end up damaging your unit. Now, I know the analogy fails because many of you could probably assemble IKEA furniture without the instructions, but hopefully you get my point. Desire and strength, unchanneled and undirected according to proper instructions, could actually end up doing damage. It might leave people... the person confused or overwhelmed, it might cause them to give up on the whole project altogether. I think that this is a good comparison to our subject this morning, to the subject of fighting sin, to the subject of sanctification. So what I want to do this morning, I don't want to yell at you to pursue holiness. And I don't really want to pretend like this is a locker room and get you pumped up to pursue holiness. No, I want this sermon to be somewhat like the IKEA instruction manual. My goal this morning is to provide you with clarity on what the Bible teaches about sanctification and to clear any confusion or misconception that exists in our minds about this topic. Because if we are honest and if we are truthful, if we are reflective, then most of us, if we have been in the church for any length of time, understand that the pursuit of holiness is an important thing, and we can probably say some true things about it, maybe even from the Bible, but we are, if honest, upon reflection, actually confused about this matter. So I want to, conf- I want to clear the misconception this morning. And we're going to do that not by walking through one text as we normally do, but I'm framing this sermon around four questions. The first of those is this. Why should I care about fighting sin? Why should I care about fighting sin? 
Now, I trust that in a room of this size, most of us who are professing Christians in a hostile environment, which is Canada and southern Ontario, I trust that many of us would have some desire and knowledge that the pursuit of holiness is an important thing. I would imagine that there are many of you who actually have the desire to fight the sin in your life. But I also think that it is equally true, given our inclinations, given the culture in which we live, given the broader culture of evangelicalism, I think that it's equally true that we can be tempted to think that holiness is largely irrelevant and boring. We can neglect holiness, for example. We, we think that the point of life is to enjoy it, and so this becomes our predominant goal. We work hard so that we can play hard. We go to great lengths to make sure that our lives are enjoyable. Or we think of holiness in a moralistic fashion. As long as I'm faithful to my wife, that I provide for my children, that I don't cuss or drink, as long as I'm a generally nice guy and a stand-up citizen, that's sufficient. And, that is, and that's the reason, uh, by the way, I think that many of us have a hard time truly believing that the people around us, co-workers, neighbors, family members, who are nice people, are sinners and guilty before a holy God. Because we have reduced our definition of holiness to being an upright citizen. As long as you look good to others, you're a good guy. And then the other way that we can neglect holiness is through bad theology. God has forgiven me in Jesus. He will forgive me when I sin and mess up. And so if I go and get drunk this weekend, it's really not a big deal. I can show up on Sunday and hear the sermon and be washed of my sins. Or if I watch explicit material just this once, it's okay, it's not a big deal. Jesus will forgive me. Now, let me address this, not by scolding you, not by screaming at you or shouting at you, but by showing you Scripture. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Page 976 in the Black Pew Bible, if that's what you're using. Remember, my goal is clarifying your thinking, which means that there's going to be some mental cognitive work that we're going to have to do. So if you're taking notes, great. If you're not, then stay with me, pay attention, because we're going to have to use our minds this morning in order to understand the argument of the sermon. It says this, Ephesians 1, verse 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, I know that there's great debate about the mention of election in this passage, and that's not my goal here to clear that up this morning, but the argument is this. If you are a Christian, on either side of the debate, by the way, if, if you're a Christian, God has chosen you in Christ from before the foundation of the world. 
And the purpose of God choosing you to be a Christian was not merely so that you could have a one-way ticket to heaven, but so that you might become more and more holy in this life and in the next. Okay? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus here this morning, the argument of the text is, and I know it's hard to believe, but we must believe it because we find it in Scripture, is that God has chosen you to be a believer in the Lord Jesus from before the foundation of the world, not merely so that one day when you die, you can go to heaven. That's true, hallelujah, and praise be to God for that. But also so that you might be more and more and more in this life and in the next, being more and more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. God has chosen you from before the foundation of the world so that you might be holy and blameless before him. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. That's the other text that I want to turn to in Ephesians. Ephesians 5, verses 50, uh, chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. And this is the famous passage on marriage in the New Testament, but I want to use it to argue for our sanctification this morning. It says this in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And again, listen to me, because I think that we're all, most of us would identify ourselves as evangelical Christians, and most of us, many of us, would come from an evangelical background, which means this. That when we think of the death of the Lord Jesus, we think of it predominantly and primarily to do with the forgiveness of our sins, the pardon of our sins, the wiping away of our sins. And that's good. That's good that we connect the, the death of the Lord Jesus to the forgiveness of our sins. But look with me. Another major purpose of Jesus out of self-sacrificial love for you giving himself up on the cross, was so that we, as a church, might be sanctified. That we might be washed with the word so that we might be presented as a spotless bride to the groom who laid down his life for us. God does not say to us that I will save you, I will forgive you of your sins, and now you're on your own to live your life how you think best, or on your own to fight your sin left to yourself. No, God says that the very purpose for Jesus coming into the world was so that your sins could be forgiven, but also so that you might fight against your sin, Christian. Let me be very clear then. When we choose to sin, when we ignore the importance of holiness in our lives, I think the way that we often think of it is I'm just breaking a few unimportant rules. I'm just breaking a few arbitrary, inconvenient rules that God has arbitrary set up in this universe. That's how we think of it. But let me be very clear to you that when you sin against God, when you engage in things that you know to be wrong according to the scriptures in your life as a believer, you're not rebelling against rules. You're rebelling against divine love. 
We are rebelling against the love of God in Christ Jesus because you're saying to God that, God, I really don't care about your love for me. I really don't care about the love that you've shown to me in Jesus. And I don't care about its purpose, uh, the, the, de- the purpose of the death of Jesus in my life. I'm going to do my own thing. When we rebel, when we sin, we are rebelling against divine love. But this leads us to attention, doesn't it? Pastor, I understand that the pursuit of holiness should be a priority in my life. I can see that this is what the Bible calls me to and what God wants of me. I want that too. I want to fight my sin, but it's hard. I've tried so many times to fight pornography, and I return to it again and again as a dog returns to its own vomit. Just yesterday... I blew up my kids in sinful anger again. I want to be happy for others, but in my worst moments, and if I'm honest, in most moments, I actually just wish that others were as miserable as I am. I know that lying is wrong, but sometimes it's just the easier thing to do. It keeps the peace. I shouldn't be saying this, but did you hear When I'm with my old buddies, it's hard to say no to the excessive drinking and the coarse joking. There are lingering desires in my heart that I wish were gone and I'm too ashamed to even talk about. Pastor, I've tried this whole holiness thing. Honest to goodness, I have put forth effort. I have tried to be good and I have tried to put sin to death. But I am exhausted and tired. I am weary in my soul, and I sit here looking good, but deeply discouraged about my spiritual progress. How should we make sense of this? Which leads us to our second question. Should Christians struggle with sin? Should Christians struggle with sin? Remember, my goal is clarity in your thinking this morning. That's my goal. Sometimes our wrong thinking about sanctification is connected to a wrong view of sin. And here's how it goes. I'm actually not that bad of a person. I just make wrong choices. The solution for such a person, then, is to modify their behavior so that we are presentable to others and to God. Or how about this? There's a guy by the name of John Wesley, and in many respects, I respect this man. But one of the ways in which I think that he erred was that he taught a doctrine called Christian perfectionism. Christian perfectionism essentially taught that a Christian could reach such a state of spirituality that he would love perfectly and no longer have to battle indwelling sin. Now, I don't think that any of you would say, hey, I'm a Wesleyan Christian perfection guy. I don't think that there's um, anyone in here who would say that I believe in Christian perfection in terms of sanctification. And maybe there are, uh, and, and then hopefully this is helpful to you as well. But I think that there are echoes of that in our thinking. Here's how that kind of thinking goes. I, I profess Christ. I shouldn't struggle like this. I, I became a Christian. Shouldn't these sinful habits be gone from my life? I was baptized. I thought that I would have made more progress by now. 
Christians don't struggle in the ways that I do, do they? And so this can be disorienting and this can be confusing. Now, there's an illustration that I think is helpful. I hope it's helpful. I share often with the youth that I teach, and I think that they find it helpful. So let me share it here. Let's suppose that you are unconscious out in a field at night in the dark in the rain. You're unconscious, face flat on your face, in the mud, in the rain, unconscious, and then all of a sudden, God snaps his fingers, and then you awake. That moment of you awaking is, uh, it could be like your initial salvation, or your regeneration, or your new birth. And so you're covered in mud, you're absolutely filthy dirty, and the only thing that orients you in that moment is a lamppost in the distance. And so you begin walking towards the lamppost, And it takes you a long time to get there, but you walk there making progress. And along the way, you're wiping the mud off of yourself, throwing it onto the ground. You're wiping more mud off of yourself, throwing it to the ground, and you approach the lamppost, and that's supposed to be a picture of the Christian life. You don't have to answer out loud, but as you approach the lamppost, are you becoming cleaner or dirtier? You're becoming cleaner, right? You're you're taking the mud off of you. You're throwing it to the ground. Objectively, you are becoming cleaner. But here's the other question. As you approach the lamppost, are you becoming more or less aware of how dirty you actually are? And I would argue that you're becoming more aware. That even though you're actually becoming cleaner, but because of the light of the lamppost, you're becoming more and more aware of how dirty you actually are and were. I think that this is a helpful depiction of the Christian's experience. Because as you grow in the Christian faith, two things are happening simultaneously. You are getting rid of more and more sin from your life, and you are pursuing godliness more and more. But also you are becoming more and more aware of how sinful you really are. And so when you become a Christian, you do change and you are transformed, but your focus isn't on I now sin so much less, but your focus is, I didn't know how sinful I was. Two texts might be helpful in this regard. Romans 7, you don't have to turn there, let me just read it to you. Romans 7 verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And then Galatians 5, 16 through 17, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are in opposition to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. I'm going to address the issue of how to battle our sin in just a moment, but before we engage in battle, I think that we have to be aware that we are in a battle. And so the picture of a Christian is not a passenger on an all-inclusive cruise ship that will take you from from here to the grave. No, according to the scriptures, this is not a time of peace for us. It's not a time of rest in the ultimate sense. It is a time of war and battle. The Christian is depicted as a soldier who will wage war against his flesh, the world, and the devil. And we'll talk about that just a little bit more in just a moment. Thus, sanctification, or our pursuit of holiness, which includes our fighting against our sin, 
is not instantaneous, and it's not meant to be easy. It's more like a pig roast than a microwave dinner, and it's more like a marathon than a sprint. And that's why theologians call this aspect of our growth as Christians progressive sanctification. And may I be so bold as to say this morning that if you are in Christ, that you have believed on the Lord Jesus and are seeking to follow him with your life, however imperfectly you are doing that, the only person surprised by your lack of sanctification, the only person shocked by your habitual returning to a particular sin is not God, but you. God is not surprised by the depth of your depravity. God is, he's not shocked by the deep-seated nature of your sin. And amazingly, even as he sees us in our sinfulness, even as he sees our brokenness, and even as he sees our deep-seated depravity, he does not pull back his affections because of our brokenness. Let me read to you just a brief quote from a 17th century Puritan by the name of Thomas Goodwin. And he says this, There is comfort concerning such infirmities, in that your very sins move God to pity more than to anger, to God or to Christ, right? Yes, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. And Christ, loving the persons and hating only the sin, his hatred shall all fall only upon the sin, to free you of it by its ruin and destruction, but his affection shall be the more drawn out to you. If you're paying attention to the quote, you can kind of follow along the train of thought. Yes, you heard him right. Jesus is actually drawn to our brokenness, to our depravity, and to our sinfulness. Not to join us in it, not to congratulate us for it, not to condemn us because of it, not to shame us for it, but he is drawn to our sinfulness. Not as a drunkard is drawn to a drink to get drunk, but as a good physician is drawn to a disease to heal it. Out of the inward depths of his heart, he is drawn to our sin and brokenness, to heal our wounds, to purify our poisoned hearts, and to beautify us into his image. Friends, this is our Jesus, the friend of sinners, the healer of the sick, the shepherd who binds up the injured sheep, which means this. If you're sitting there this morning and you're not, what, you're not sure what to do with your sin, you're sitting here this morning and you're absolutely in, enslaved and in bondage to certain passions. You've tried to put away those things, but you struggle and you're disoriented and you're confused and you're discouraged and you're ready to give up. Come, just as you are. Warts, bruises, scars, 
scars, sin, iniquity, impurity, and all. I guarantee you that if you would come in repentance and in faith, however imperfectly you believe and you turn away from your sins, God wants to heal you. And God wants to sanctify his own. Now, the problem is that when I talk about sanctification like that in such strong terms, it could leave the impression that we are to sit back and let God do the work. We might call this let go and let God theology. We might put it this way, stare long and hard at the gospel and that will bring about sanctification in your life. Pray earnestly to God to change you and leave the rest to him. Now, of course, there's an element of truth in those statements, but if that's all we do, the results will be disastrous. We ought not to think that sanctification in the Christian life can be reduced to a single secret key or to some magic formula. So again, how should we understand this? How should we understand the way that we approach sanctification as Christians? Is sanctification all of God? I feel like I should say yes. Is sanctification all of me? Well, certainly not. But does sanctification require effort on my part? I think so. But doesn't the word effort sound like legalism? Well, now I'm confused. Who is responsible for sanctification? How does it work? And this is our third question here this morning. Who is responsible for my sanctification? Okay. And I realize that this sermon is going to be illustration heavy, but I just have another one here. I first came across this in Jerry Bridges' book, The Pursuit of Holiness. It's a classic. Some of you may have read that. But he likens the process of sanctification to the process of farming. And he says this. On the one hand, the farmer is well aware that a successful harvest is dependent on factors outside of his control, right? So he can't bring the rain or prevent a drought. The farmer can't entirely eliminate pestilence or disease upon his crops. The farmer doesn't cause the sun to rise every morning, and he certainly doesn't cause the seed to germinate in the ground. But on the other hand, the farmer can't just let go and let God and expect a harvest in the fall. It is his responsibility to till the ground. He must plow the field, plant the seed, spray the fertilizer, and finally harvest and store the crop. Bridges says this, Farming is a joint venture between God and the farmer, but the farmer cannot do what God must do, and God will not do what the farmer should do. And in much the same way, And I'm leaving aside some of the theological debate around this for just a moment, the technicality of it. The sanctification of believers is a partnership between God and the Christian. You cannot pursue holiness in your own strength and on your own. We need God to be operative in our lives by the Spirit if we are going to achieve holiness. At the very same time, though, To think that God will magically zap holiness into us entirely apart from our active pursuit of sanctification is wrong-headed. God has given to us the responsibility to obey his word, to put off sin, and to pursue righteousness, and he will not do these things for us. So whose responsibility is sanctification? 
Is it God's? Is it ours? Yes. God must do the work of sanctification in us if we are to be sanctified. And yet, God leaves us with a role to play that we must fight the sin in our lives. We must put off sin. We must put on righteousness. We must practice the spiritual disciplines. We must belong to a local church. All things like this. There is a part for us to play, even though we know desperately that we need God to work in our lives if we are to be sanctified. I want to end this sermon by providing you just one tool, one practical help that you can take away in your fight against sin. And by the way, I think you've noticed, I hope you've noticed, if you haven't noticed, you're sleeping, that's okay. Um, We're in a new series this morning. We're not in the book of Isaiah. (laughs) We're out of Isaiah. We're in this series called The Art of Christian Living. And so that's going to take us through the summer, and we're going to be taking a look at different aspects of how to live the Christian life. You can think of it maybe as Christian Living 101. And I love the title for the series, The Art of Christian Living, okay? So we're talking about living, we're talking about daily life, okay? But we're assuming that it's a certain kind of living, it's it's the art of Christian living. We're assuming that there is a right way and a wrong way to approach at least Christian living, There are certain things that the Bible has to say about how to live our lives as Christians, and yet it's the art of it. It's not an exact science. It's not an exact formula. It's it's, it's not as if every one of us is going to be uniformly look like like one another, live our lives exactly like the person sitting next to us in the pew, but all of us are going to be working out of the same book, out of the same gospel, and out of the same principles, hopefully, or at least that's the goal. And I think James was strategic in placing this sermon at the very beginning because really, in one sense, the art of Christian living could be summed up in one concept, and that is sanctification. How are we being made more and more like Christ in our day-to-day lives, even as God works in us by his Holy Spirit? So this is really, um, it's a good place to start because most of the other issues that we're going to be talking about directly or indirectly link back to this topic of sanctification. Now, the fourth and final question of this sermon is, how should we fight our sin? How should we fight our sin? For this, let us turn back to Romans 6, verse 10. Romans 6, and this is the last place that we'll turn to as far as Bible texts go. Romans 6, verse 10. Let me just read verses 10 through 14. Romans 6, Verses 10 through 14. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, there's lots that we could draw out of here. Let me try and just draw out a few concise things. We are to fight sin, friends, on the grounds that we are united to Christ. Did did, did you know that? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, okay, He's not just external to you. He's not just like a friend that you know. He's not just an acquaintance that you have. You've actually been spiritually and actually and genuinely been united to the Lord Jesus. And you've been united particularly 
to his death and to his resurrection. That's the argument of the passage. He says, Jesus has died to sin, and therefore we have died to sin. He rose and ever lives unto God, and therefore we should pursue righteousness. Okay? Which means this. The gospel declares, on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection, that you are under new ownership and new management if you are in Christ. You are no longer under the dominion of sin, but you are now ruled by the law of grace. Which means this. Rather than trying, failing, and then being condemned, the Christian, though failing, is forgiven and then free to live a life of holiness. Let me just say that again. Rather than trying, failing, and then being condemned, the Christian, though failing, is forgiven and then free to live a life of holiness. And this is all because of what Jesus has done on the cross, and in his resurrection. Let me conclude with this. In World War II, obviously there were the Axis and the Allies. And toward the end of the war, Germany was really struggling because their army was fighting at multiple locations and so their troops were being thinned out. And there was a significant day towards the end of the war. And you've heard of this event before, surely, on June 6, 1944, in Operation Overlord, Overlord some 1,000 ships carried some 200,000 soldiers across the English Channel to France, where they stormed the coasts of Normandy. And this allowed the Allied troops to make their way into France and into Europe and overwhelm the Nazis. That day is called D-Day. And it would not be for another year and three months that the Second World War would end on September 2nd, 1945, which we call V-Day. But historians have generally concluded that the events of D-Day effectively guaranteed the end of the war in favor of the Allies. So there is D-Day, which came earlier and guaranteed the victory, and there is V-Day, which came a year and three months later when the Allies actually emerged victorious. The takeaway for us is this. We, as believers in the Lord Jesus, during this time of redemptive history, are living between D-Day and V-Day. The war for the Christian has already been won at the cross as Jesus hung there to die for the sins of his own and rose triumphantly over the grave. But V-Day is still coming. When Jesus will return and establish his throne, when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and you will fully lift the curse. And when he will eradicate all sin, including the vestiges of sin in us. So we're living between D-Day and V-Day. The war has been won, but little battles are still required for us to fight. So until that day, Christian, we are called by our captain to take up arms and to fight against the enemy in these smaller battles, to wage war against sin, beginning with the sin in our own hearts. And when you are discouraged and weary, when you feel overwhelmed and disoriented, remember Jesus. 
who willingly and courageously took upon himself the hardest battle, who is ever present and ready to help the believer in times of temptation and need, who is drawn, remember, not away, but toward you in your misery and sin, who will one day make all things new, lifting the curse and eradicating the disease of sin once and for all. The hymn says, which we're going to sing, Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time that we've had this morning. I pray that you would do with this sermon what you want to do. I pray that it would provide clarity for all of us as we think about our sanctification and the fight against sin in our own lives. But I also pray that this would not just be a mechanical process that we engage in, but that this would be part and parcel of our reception of the gospel and of our ongoing daily relationship with you through your Son and by the Holy Spirit. And so I just pray more and more upon this church that you would pour forth your spirit and your grace, that your grace, Lord Jesus, would transform us today, throughout our lives, and forevermore. We praise you, Jesus. You're a marvelous Savior, and our only hope is in you. Pray these things in your name. Amen.